welcome everyone to this online talk. Um, the title of the talk is Anna Atkins, Botanical Illustration and Photographic Innovation. Um, the event is a collaboration between Photo Oxford, Photo Oxford Festival and Torch. The Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities and I would like to say thank you to Torch for hosting this event tonight and for making everything possible and for showing slides so we see some images. My name is Lena Fritsch, I'm the Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Ashmolean Museum, University of Oxford, and I'm also a big fan of photography and a researcher of photography. I did my PhD on Japanese photography and I've published a lot on, well, mainly Japanese photography. Um, and uh, yes, I'm very excited that tonight I'm joined by Professor Jeffrey Batchen, who knows much more about early photography uh, than me. And we want this to be a really fun, relaxed talk tonight. So please get yourself a drink. I have a nice little Campari here. And uh, just relax and please ask us questions. So there will be, there's a little chat box. And so you can comment and ask us questions that we will then be able to answer at the end. Um, I'm going to say a few words about Jeff, who you can already see, I think, on the screen. Jeff is the head of art history at the University of Oxford. And he's also a fellow of Trinity College. And his research has really focused on photography, on photography in a very diverse way. Just going to mention a few main publications, for example, Burning with Desire, the conception of photography from 1997, Each Wild Idea, Writing Photography History from 2001, Emanations, The Art of the Cameraless Photograph from 2016, I think this might actually also be interesting for tonight's talk, and Apparitions, Photography and Dissemination from 2018. And Jeff, like me, has also curated uh, quite many shows, um, in his case, ranging from Australia and New Zealand to Japan, um, to the Netherlands and Germany. So welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Lena. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the introduction. So just to kind of give you a brief idea how, on, you know, how the event is organized tonight, um, I'm going to first give a kind of very brief introduction about Photo Oxford, about the festival, about the theme of the festival, um, and also about Anna Atkins. And um, this will be accompanied by slides, so you, can, so you can see some images. And then following this, I'm going to ask, um, well, it's going to be Jeff and I in conversation, but mainly asking me, Jeff, various questions about um, Atkins work and um, yeah as I mentioned at the beginning please ask us questions so at the end we can come back to your questions so yes could I please get the first slide here we see this is our kind of intro slide um, again botanical illustration and photographic innovation could I see the next slide please um, yes, so of course this is about photography and we would like to thank many people who have um, made it possible for us to show images tonight, um, different institutions that hold Anna Atkins images, so thank you very much. Uh, the next slide please, so this is just um, to give you a kind of idea what the Photo Oxford Festival is about this year, so the theme of this year's festival is Women and Photography and I happen to be a trustee of Photo Oxford and um, I'm very excited about this theme. 
one of the reasons why we wanted to focus on women and photography this year is that it is exactly 100 years ago that the first woman um, graduated from Oxford University. So this was in 1920 in October. And so we thought it's really kind of fitting to, the, to celebrate that by focusing on uh, women and photography. And the theme women and photography does not only mean um, women photographers, but it also relates to women in front of the camera, relates to women who work with photography as curators, women who collect photography. So, you know, really women and photography in the, in the, in the widest um, possible sense. And here we see a photograph by Helen Muspret, which is one exhibition that was on during the first festival um, at the Western Library in Oxford. Of course, unfortunately, during the um, pandemic, the exhibition is closed at the moment. Um, next slide, please. But we have obviously knowing about um, COVID, we, um, when we, you know, at the beginning of the year, when we were thinking about what to do with the festival, we thought about various alternative ways of presenting photography. And here you can see um, two interviews that I did for the, for the homepage, basically, for example, one with Cornelia Parker, contemporary artist, who I think is actually quite interesting also in relation to um, Anna Atkins photography and Tokyo Rwando, whose work would have been shown in a big exhibition at the Ashmolean um, this summer, um, an exhibition called Tokyo Art and Photography, which we had to postpone, which is hopefully going to happen next year's summer. So yeah, various online events. You can see the homepage um, in their slide, I hope. So please check out the homepage. There's a lot of content there. Um, next slide, please. Um, and the other way of showing photography, if you know you have to close exhibitions, is of course outside. So we decided to have a few outside installations. So if you're in Oxford, um, on the homepage you can see um, that there is a map which you can download, and with basically on your phone, you could walk around town and see where there are different um, outdoor installations of photography, ranging from Italian, a young Italian. Uh, London-based photographer Silvia Rossi to, next slide please, um, Anna Atkins, whose work is presented also outside at uh, Trinity College and Jeff made a selection of, of beautiful Anna Atkins uh, photographs that are shown outside. There's a, yeah, I think there's a third slide showing um, yeah, some outdoor installations. Yeah, we really, what we really liked about this is, you know, kind of people who might have never ever heard of Anna Atkins might just come across her work by just walking through Oxford and suddenly seeing an installation and then um, might be curious and might want to, to find out more about her work. Um, next slide, please. So I'm, as I said, I'm not really an expert of early photography. I do 20th century photography most of the time. And so kind of, you know, I wanted to see how Anna Atkins photography is now perceived today by people who don't know anything about photography. And so I basically just Googled her first. And it was quite interesting to see that all these products came up. So there are all these Anna Atkins prints that you can buy, of course, but there are also, you know, tablecloths and puzzles, and there is an Atkins wallpaper even. And I thought it's quite amazing that a woman who's or a photographer who's seen as may, maybe even the first woman photographer, or definitely one of the very early photographers, that her work is still so fashionable and um, that it still works today, that, there, that there's even wallpaper uh, with her motifs. But yeah, who was Anna Atkins? Next slide, please. Anna Atkins was born in 1799 uh, in Kent. 
Her father, John George Children, was a botanist and chemist and zoologist. Her mother passed away when she was very young, just a year later, and she had a quite close relationship with her father. Um, and considering the fact that she was a woman and considering you know, the time, she actually received quite a scientific education. Um, she collected plants and dried them, creating these kind of herbarium albums. Um, I recently actually found some in our basement uh, when we were going through, when my grandmother passed away and we found all these um, albums uh, by my grandfather and great grandfather. So I think, you know, many of you probably also know this, this wonderful tradition of um, herbariums. So she, you know, she also collected plants and dried them and uh, researched them and was then also elected a member of the London Botanical Society in 1839. So that was kind of, you know, the botanical interest was already there. She married John um, Pelly Atkins, so that's where the name Atkins then comes from, who was a businessman and um, a proponent of railways. She didn't have any children, and maybe we can go to the next slides, we can uh, see some of her works. And, um, so John, John George Children, so her father, and John um, Pelly Atkins, her husband, they were both friends with uh, William Henry Fox Talbot. Of course, you know, important uh, pioneer of photography. And Anna Atkins was also friends with John Herschel, who's also an experimental photographer um, and astronomer, who invented the blueprint in 1842. And we're going to hear more about, uh, about the technological side of things in a minute. And so basically one of the very important works by Anna Atkins is, you know, the, this very early photo book that was then first published, well, it, it was published between 1843 and 1853 in different kind of components. But um, the work that we see here on the screen is one of those really, really early works um, that she then created in, in the early 1940s with this new innovative technique. Um, maybe we just have a look at a few more um, images for now. So the, these are algae. It's a whole book only about algae. And it's just fascinating how beautiful these algae look um, in her work. And the reason why she originally created this, these, uh, these works, these images, was that there was already um, a, a book about these algae, uh, a manual. It's called Manual to the British Algae from 1841. Um, by William Henry Harvey, and that one didn't have any illustration, it didn't have any photographs, and um, so she created these photographs in a way to, you know, complement um, the manual. She continued to create more of these wonderful cyanotype prints. I think overall it must have been over a thousand that she created, and these are works that we now see that she um, created together with her friend, and Dixon. And it's actually quite interesting if you look at the work, how it develops, it kind of gets more abstract even, it gets even more creative um, and more kind of decorative. Um, and yes, now I would like to ask Jeff some questions about, about these works. First, firstly, maybe, you know, just the kind of personal context. Jeff, how did you first encounter Anna Atkins photography? And, um, you know, how did you, do you remember how you, how you first encountered her photographs? I do remember because like most people, I think I first encountered Atkins' work in the form of this book, which came out in 1985, uh, authored by the eminent American scholar, Larry Schaff and published by Aperture in New York, beautifully illustrated. I'll just show you. Uh, uh, the nice thing about planotypes is that they 
reproduce very nicely because they're such stark blue and white images. So until about the mid 1980s, uh, Anna Atkins had been more or less forgotten. Uh, and Larry had encountered her work and did a fair amount of research and presented this book. And it, this was my first introduction to them. So I first saw them in the form of reproductions in this book before I'd ever seen a, an actual print. And I should just mention that in just last year, Larry has issued a uh, revised and much expanded version of that book. So the one I'd showed first is now apparently a rare and valuable uh, item, whereas this one uh, is still available in print. So if people are, have an interest in learning more about Atkins, Larry is the source of all knowledge. And this is a very beautiful book that has only recently just come out. So yeah, that's how I first encountered her work, Elaine. Although since then, uh, I have seen her work because many of the world's preeminent museums, and certainly those that collect photography, have collected work by Atkins. I'll just add something to what you said before. Uh, according to Larry, there's actually at least 6,000 cyanotypes by Atkins of British algae, plus several hundred others of various other things. So there's actually a lot of Atkins uh, prints out there in the, in the, in the museum and in the, even in the market. Um, maybe we can kind of talk a little bit more about, you know, this kind of first book, the photographs of, of British algae, um, the cyanotype impressions, which is often considered to be the first photo book. Um, how, you know, how were these works actually created technically? So I already mentioned it was a, a, the cyanotype photographic process was, um, was developed by by uh, John Herschel in 1842. And it was a completely, really new technology then at the time when she used it. How did, how did she actually create these works? As you said before, Lena, uh, Herschel was a friend of uh, John Children and therefore also of Anna Atkins. And when he published his discovery of cyanotype, he sent John Children a copy. And so Anna Atkins had direct had direct access, if you like, to uh, all the formulae and chemicals that were necessary. And she was a very industrious person. So she immediately imagined this particular function for this new invention and decided she would uh, create the, the series of albums. So uh, what it involved was some relatively available chemistry. And certainly if you were an expert chemist as her father was, and presumably Anna herself also was, uh, you mixed ferric ammonium citrate and potassium ferricyanide to make an iron salt that was sensitive to light. So you would take an ordinary piece of writing paper, you would brush this chemistry onto the paper and let it dry in the dark. And then when you were ready to expose it to light, you would take it out of the dark, put it in sunlight, literally put, in this case, a specimen of dried algae on top of the piece of paper, expose it to light for between maybe five to 15 minutes, depending on the degree of sunshine that was available. And the image, as you can see, a white impression on a blue background would gradually begin to appear. And then when you, uh, based on actually, mostly on experience, realized that the full impression had been made, you would take the specimen off the paper and then wash the piece of paper in clean water. And that then washed out the light sensitive salts and you had a permanent white on blue impression of the plant specimen in your hand. And as you can see, um, they've lasted from 1843 until now, and they still look, most of them, almost as fresh as the day that she made them. Yeah, it's amazing. 
Um, so if we if we think about the purpose of these works, so they were originally made for, you know, there's a kind of botanical scientific purpose to re record these specimen and um, record them as accurately as possible. And of course, they were shown in the correct size because they were based on dried algae and dried um, plants. And they're presented together with, with their Latin name, just the way that you know you would present uh, plants in these herbarium albums at the time. Could you talk a bit about this botanical interest and the context that these images were first created in? Yeah, um, Atkins was already familiar with the mechanics, if you like, of scientific illustration. She had helped her father illustrate a book uh, devoted to the genera of shells and she had done the drawings on which engravings were based. So before Atkins, and even after Atkins to some degree, the way that scientific illustration occurred was somebody would make a drawing of a specimen, and that drawing would have been translated into an engraved plate, and then you would make ink on paper impressions from that engraved plate. That, of course, was a rather laborious means of illustrating scientific texts, and also allowed, for, you know, brought into the the mechanism, if you like, the potential imperfection of the human hand and the human eye. So what Atkins wanted to do was replace this imperfection with a means of making uh, impressions or Im images of algae where the algae got to make their own drawing and the imperfection of the human hand was taken out of the equation. So what she would do is literally, she had this extraordinary collection of British algae, some of which she'd collected herself and some of which had been sent to her by friends and uh, colleagues. She would then take each specimen and literally place it on the page. As you said, one of the striking things about these images is that they're a one-to-one -one copy of the original specimen because the matrix, if you like, is literally the piece of seaweed or algae itself. She then also used uh, a, a handwritten Latin label that she placed on each page. And that's been written on a piece of paper, which has then been oiled so that the paper is made transparent. And she would put that on the paper as well. And then over the specimen and this label, she would put a sheet of glass and all of it would be then screwed down into a wooden frame. And then they would be left out in the sunlight so that the glass in the frame would then flatten the specimen down onto the paper and create as sharp an impression as possible. And then what happens um, is that the specimen prevents light reaching the light sensitive iron salt in the paper and thus leaves a white impression and the rest of the paper goes blue. And so we get these kind of reverse tone impressions of all the details of the plant. And as we've been looking through the examples, you will have seen how on occasions she's folded part of the seaweed or algae over itself in order to make it fit the page. So there's a certain amount of creativity involved, if you like, in arranging the specimen on the page. Usually the specimen was placed directly in the center so that there's this sense of the logic of symmetry, if you like, um, involved in the way in which the specimen itself uh, was placed on the page, or in this case, across the diagonal, so that all of, as much of the specimen as possible could actually be included um, in, in the, in the uh, plate that represents it. Of course, uh, when, light, when, the, when the specimen is somewhat transparent, light can go through it, and so we get some sort of variations that tells us something about the thickness and transparency, relative transparency of each specimen as well. A few other little things about it that are worth noting. Uh, she, books at this period were usually issued in parts. So as you mentioned, the first part was issued in October of 1843, 
with eight plates. And then this, each of those uh, fascicles, as they were called, would then be hand sewn together in a, in a sort of paper wrapper. And then that would be sent out to her friends and to botanical colleagues, both in England and possibly around the world. And so probably uh, she would have used her servants to help her do this because what we're talking about is an awful lot of manual labor. So one of the interesting things about these kinds of albums is that on the one hand, we have this industrial automatic process of making images. And on the other hand, we have a lot of hand labor and manual creativity that's involved in the making of them. In the example you have up here, which is quite an interesting one, you can see that how she would have literally placed the specimen on the piece of paper and then lifted it off, flipped it over onto another piece of paper, and we get the same specimen, but now in a different arrangement on the other piece of paper. So we have to imagine her and her servants sitting there or standing there, flipping these pieces of algae from page to paper to paper to make multiple copies of the same specimen. It's a reminder that what this project is about is providing accurate data, accurate scientific information. So it didn't matter that each image didn't look exactly the same. What mattered was that the same information was imparted in every version of the specimen that was represented in the album. And this, she imagined, would make scientific comparison so that all colleagues would be looking at the same image and the same representation of the same specimen wherever they were. And this would allow scientific conversation and debate about these specimens you know, much more accurate and much easier. What else would you like? That's, that's interesting because that already leads kind of to the next question. You know, you just mentioned the, the scientific relevance and that you can compare the different um, specimen and, um, but at the same time, of course, we also have already used the words creativity and, you know, she, arrangement and composition. So what is this relationship between science and art in this book, which I find really fascinating? How would you describe the relationship between science and art in her work? I think one of the things we have to remember about all of these people from this period, Herschel, Talbot, children, Atkins, was that they imagined themselves to be natural philosophers. And under that rubric, almost all knowledge rested so that you studied science. But for example, both children and Atkins also wrote poems. Uh, Talbot wrote published poetry and also drew and also invented an electric motor and also was involved with the translation of cuneiform. These were kind of omnivorous intellectuals. And so the division that we now have between science and art would not have been normal for them. And so of course, there was always an aesthetic element to what they did. Good scientific illustration you know, is about conveying data information as accurately as possible, but also in as uh, pleasing a manner as possible. So certainly she would have had some consideration for the look of the prints. And as we can see, the symmetry of them, the way the label always sits in a particular place on the paper. She obviously was imagining how people might be leafing through this album and what kind of pleasures they would get from it, both intellectual and aesthetic, uh, I think equally. And um, at the moment on, on screen, we see you know, um, a photograph or a, 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 a cyanotype from a later um, album, it's the it's one of the the books that she created together together with Anne Dixon, um, the British and foreign flowering plants. 
How do you see the kind of development in, in the work? Is it changing? Because if I look at them, it looks to me as if they become a little bit more, you know, even more kind of free, even more liberal. She kind of gets even more experimental later on than at the beginning. I think that's true. Uh, in, she produced 12 fascicles of the British algae, algae publication over 10 years. But her father, to whom she was very close, died in 1852. So she more or less took a year off to uh, wind up his estate and to produce a memorial book devoted to him. Uh, and her close friend, Anne Dixon, uh, helped her in that endeavor. And it's thought that Anne might well have uh, helped Anna with the last fascicle of the British Algae publication, but that they then went on to produce various other albums, including this one, devoted to British and foreign flowering plants and other ones devoted to ferns and then some that included things like feathers and other kinds of things. And with these other specimens, like in this rather extraordinary example, you can see them being far more creative. In other words, the constraints of science seem to have been put aside and now they're more interested in the decorative possibilities of um, how these types of photographs might be, um, might be created and uh, enjoyed. Yeah, we don't really need the slides anymore now. Um, and perhaps we can talk a little bit more about photography at the time um, in general and the kind of context of photography, because of course we're talking about um, the very early stages of, of photography. Um, and maybe you can, you know, for some people who are, might be not so familiar with this context, you could tell a little bit more about, you know, maybe also some of the people that we've already mentioned, like Talbot and Herschel and um, yeah. Yeah, uh, photography has an interesting sort of origin story in that at least two people claim to have invented photography. Uh, a Frenchman named Louis Daguerre, a professional painter and entrepreneur, announced his invention of a metal-based photography process that he immodestly called after himself, the daguerreotype. And he announced it in the first week of January of 1839 in Paris. And then uh, this gentleman scholar named William Henry Fox Talbot heard of this announcement and suddenly realized that his own experiments of six years before, uh, he he'd similarly exper experimented with the photographic process, but he never thought he'd quite resolved it enough to be, for it to be worthy of a public announcement. So harassed by his mother, who was very annoyed that he hadn't got in there before the Frenchman, he hurriedly made a, a similar announcement and uh, presented some of his work. And he'd invented a process that he called photogenic drawing. And this was where he soaked writing paper in a light sensitive chemi uh, chemistry and then uh, exposed the specimen to light on a piece of paper, much as Atkins did a few years later with the cyanotype process. So in his case, you could see the image develop out on the paper in front of you. And then he added more salt and that uh, delayed, it didn't exactly fix, but it at least temporarily delayed the development process and then allowed an image to be seen and to be recorded permanently. So this is the, if you like, uh, double origin point of uh, photography's introduction into modern culture. The daguerreotype, which gave this very sharp uh, and clear image, uh, quickly developed into the primary commercial form of photography. And if you wanted a photographic portrait made, you would normally go to a professional daguerreotype studio. The first of these opened in London in March of 1841. And by the end of that year, there were perhaps a dozen professional studios operating throughout Britain. And similar studios opened up in most other countries around the world. Talbot's process, because 
it involved soaking chemicals directly into writing paper, which in the early 19th century was a rather fibrous paper, uh, the image tended to be blurred and less clear. And the exposure times for his process were quite long compared to the daguerreotype. So it was only a little later, a year or two later, when he invented his second process that he called calotype, which involved making a negative and then printing positives from it, that the exposure times came down to um, a level where portraiture became possible. But even then, paper-based processes like the ones that Talbot invented tended to be used by uh, gentlemen and gentlewomen amateurs rather than by professionals. So the daguerreotype dominated the professional market for photography up until and through the mid 1850s. Uh, but paper-based photography tended to be used by uh, people of Talbot's own class, members of the landed gentry, uh, people in the world of science. Um, of course, scientists who were interested in botany found it of particular interest and that's the link really with Anna Atkins. She's of more or less the same class as Talbot. She moves in the same circles. They're involved in the same scientific societies and they are sharing their various experiments. So how influential was her photo book? You know, did it have an impact at the time on um, other books and um, on photography in general? It doesn't seem to have had a big influence on others. Uh, she certainly shared, for example, she sent a, a fascicle of her book to Talbot and he in turn sent part of his The Pencil of Nature, his first photographic book to her. But, and, and there is occasional references to her work through the 19th century. But it, for example, doesn't seem to have um, spawned a lot of copies, similar kinds of books by others. There are, there are other examples of cyanotype publications. Uh, an American named Bertha Jacques, for example, produced one, but not until the turn of the 20th century. So uh, there isn't an immediate, for example, what one might imagine, oh my God, look at this amazing way of making botanical mm -hmm. books and everybody starts doing it. That actually doesn't occur. There were some limitations to what Atkins was doing and professional botanists continued to use engravings rather than photographs as the illustration of choice. Well, and Atkins is often, you know, called the first woman photographer, although there, there are kind of debates. Um, what would you say? Well, I would say, as, a, as an historian, that we need to avoid claiming firsts. It's a, it's a kind of a, it's a nice headline, but it usually can't be backed up with evidence. Uh, there are probably earlier women who worked with photography. For example, Talbot's wife, Constance, refers in letters to making photographs and so on. But I think it'd be fair to say that Anna Atkins is the first woman to produce a substantial body of photographic work and certainly the first major publication um, entirely focused on the making of photographs. So she certainly deserves some a, kind of she deserves, um, gone. Sorry, she certainly deserves a place of honor. But it is interesting or and maybe there's a book to be written about why it isn't until the mid 1980s that that honor was properly accorded to her. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about the relevance of Anna Atkins work today. So, I mean, I mentioned those, you know, kind of merchandising products that you can find online. Um, and I also mentioned Cornelia Parker's work, um, who's not, which is not directly relating to Anna Atkins necessarily, but more to Talbot. She actually went to, to came to Oxford and um, went through the archive and got inspired by the objects that were there. 
but clearly, so there are artists today who get still get inspiration from, um, you know, early photographic works. So what, what would you say today? How relevant is, is the work? I'd say in some ways, Anna Atkins has never been more current, uh, possibly because of the advent of digital imaging. A lot of photographic artists are going back to handmade photographs, including cameraless handmade photographs. And for them, Anna Atkins is a kind of high point of early practice. Uh, as I mentioned at the outset, one of the striking things about Atkins' work is that it still looks contemporary. It has no periodicity, if you like. It looks like they were made yesterday. The, the best preserved ones certainly look as if they were made yesterday. So they seem and feel very current. In fact, you might well say that there's, I don't, personally, I think it's very hard for a contemporary photographer to, to outdo Atkins in a way mm -hmm. You know, cameraless photographs with cyanotype, she kind of, uh, she is the Everest and everybody else seems to be uh, somewhat imitative. But for example, I was very fortunate last year to be able to see a fabulous Anna, exhibition of Anna Atkins work at the New York Public Library. Uh, it was like going into an aquarium with all these floating albums of these blueprints all around you. It was a fantastic experience. And the New York Public Library uh, organized a, a supplementary exhibition of contemporary artists working in a similar way. And it's a reminder that indeed there are many artists inspired by people like Atkins who are revisiting these sort of early uh, handmade photography techniques and trying to find ways in, to make photography still respond to the present. And I think Atkins is an inspiration for that. We actually already have a few um, questions that have come through. So maybe I might um, kind of open up and encourage more people to ask questions and ask you, um, Jeff, one question that came, which um, is about camera-based photography. So is there any evidence that Anna Atkins also used camera, um, a camera, or that she engaged in lens-based photography? There is evidence. Uh, Talbot, as I say, was close to uh, her father. Mm -hmm. And when he announced his invention of photography, he first sent an account of that invention to her father, and then some examples of his prints. And we have letters and we know that Anna Atkins herself went out and bought a camera shortly after that. So we can only presume, given the evidence we have of her, of her curiosity and her accomplishment, that she also made camera photographs using Talbot's earliest processes. However, so far, those have not been found. So we assume that she must have made some, but we have yet to find any actual examples. In the memoir that she prepared for her father, um, it includes poems about color type portraits. So we also presume that perhaps they made portraits of each other at some point. Certainly her father went and had a professional color type portrait made of himself uh, in London. So you know, by the time, by 1850 or 1852, when he died, photography had thoroughly infiltrated modern culture. And there are studios and professional photographers and everybody was, everybody of their means were having portraits of made of themselves. So the short answer is yes, very likely, Anna Atkins made camera-based photographs, but we don't have any actual examples, unfortunately. Interesting. Oh yeah, there is a there is a question about the algae and um, the specimen in her photographs. Are there any extinct species that must have extra value? I assume so, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't know off the top of my head. But it, uh, coming back to your earlier question about um, what Atkins might mean today. 
there have been recent articles talking about Atkins project as a kind of uh, model for eco-criticism. Uh, that, that, and it's perfectly possible if I knew more about the history of botany, that there are specimens in her albums that are now rare or difficult to find or even extinct. Uh, and certainly these kinds of Victorian depositories are becoming increasingly interesting because precisely they offer us a kind of ecology of the 1830s and 40s that we may not otherwise have access to today. Yeah. Fascinating. Coming back to the question about, um, you know, the kind of first photo book. So, um, of course, yeah, Talbot's book, the, the Pencil of Nature, is often seen as the first photo book, but Atkins' work was earlier. Is that a question or a comment? It's a statement from, uh, from well, somebody I mean, who watches us, yeah. It's a bit like first. Uh, it all depends on how you define book and first and things like that. Uh, there. As soon as photography was invented, Talbot imagined its uh, facility for publication and tried to promote the idea amongst friends that photography might be a great way, for example, for poets to uh, publish their manuscripts without having to go to a publisher or a printer. So he certainly had ideas of his own about the ways in which his paper-based photography might uh, facilitate publication. He published a book uh, called The Pencil of Nature uh, between 1844 and 1846. And so he began that project maybe about a year after Atkins began hers. So I think she properly um, should be honored as the first photographic book. Uh, on the other hand, you might say what's interesting about The Pencil of Nature is that it was a book about photography, not mm -hmm. just of photographs. So it was a selection of his own work with commentaries by Talbot about um, the role that photography might play in different kinds of image making practices. So I think, you know, they were friends and colleagues, and I think they should be honored equally. And the two books are an interesting complement to each other. They showed two different ways in which photography could be used to aid publications. Well, if we think about um, the context, um, what kind of social obstacles might Atkins have had for being considered an innovative or a serious photographer? Was she recognized in her day? Um, well, as I say, she was known in this small circle and she certainly was a respected contributor to botanical science in those circles. But like most women of that period, there were obviously um, serious constraints to her, for example, uh, reaching the eminence of her father, who was in, you know, a member of a number of societies and so on. She also, by the way, was a member of, for example, the Royal Botanical Society and things like that. It's not as if she was entirely excluded, but there's no doubt that um, her work has not reached the eminence, or did not reach the eminence during her lifetime and during the 19th century that looking back, we feel it ought to have. On the other hand, uh, for example, Julia Margaret Cameron, who begins photographing in the 1860s, certainly was an eminent photographer in her time and almost ever since was recognized around the world as being a preeminent photographer. So, you know, there needs to be some analysis of why exactly Atkins Project, for example, didn't have the impact that Cameron's career had just 20 years later. And Cameron's work was also acquired very, very early on by the, by the VNA. It was, and she exhibited all around the world. She had an exhibition in Australia in 1874. You couldn't imagine being further away from the centre of the empire than that. So she was certainly a very ambitious photographer and uh, a professional photographer, if you like. Atkins, I think, was a quieter personality and circulated her work in a much 
smaller circle of colleagues. For her, I think the project was primarily science, and not, whereas Cameron definitely had a uh, had a flair for self promotion, and Atkins was more content with uh, contributing to the small world of botanical science in which she found herself. I mean, a similarity would be, though, that they started quite late, both of them, didn't they? They were both in their 40s when they first kind of picked up photography. Yeah, yeah, I think um, Cameron was even older than that. Yeah, no, they both started relatively late. Of course, in the case of Atkins, photography was only invented uh, a couple of years before she took it up and, and decided to make uh, this, this series of albums. Uh, so she was really an innovator. I mean, we tend to forget that people looking at these albums at the time would have seen them as an inc incredible modern innovation. I mean, it's almost industrial that you can put something on a piece of paper and have it leave its own impression behind. The use of chemistry, for example, as your medium, all of these things were new and modern innovations. And I mean, her project is entirely a modernist one. Mm -hmm. There is a question about the, you know, the later albums where um, the plants come from basically all over the world. There were some, you know, we saw one from Norway, for example. So how did she actually get hold of all these uh, plants? Did she travel herself? Not, not as far as I know, but there's a few things um, to be known about her. Uh, of course, we're talking about a relatively wealthy woman. Her husband, John Atkins, and his family had plantations in Jamaica, at one point owning slaves to uh, work those plantations. So this is where the wealth you know, of the family came from. And this, of course, allowed her to uh, work, you know, independently of the need to actually make money from her labors. And of course, it allowed her to have servants and, and her own labor force, if you like, to help produce these books. So, but she is a, you know, she's a member of this community of fellow botanists. And one of the things that these communities and these societies um, engineer is the exchange of specimens. So she would have gathered up British examples and sent them off to botanical friends around the world. And equally, she would have collected or had sent to her specimens from around the world. And one of the interesting things about the later albums is precisely that they, in effect, encompass the entirety of the British Empire. So there are, exam there are ferns from Jamaica, there's ferns from New Zealand and from Australia and from all over the place. Uh, and so she was obviously concerned to give us, give her viewers a kind of global view of, for example, the species, the fern species that she was documenting. So that's something that also I think we need to take into account. We imagine that globalism is a contemporary phenomenon, but by the mid 19th century, the British Empire has made somebody like Atkins feel like she is at the center of the globe and in many ways she was. And so all those specimens come into the center and then she um, documents them in her albums. There is a question about um, the introduction of paper photography. Um, could you talk a bit more about that and also the relationship to um, kind of botanical illustration? Well, like Atkins, Talbot was a world famous botanist. And so one of the first um, functions that he imagined for his new invention of photogenic drawing was that it could allow him, like with Atkins, to make uh, accurate botanical impressions without the intervention of the human hand. So among the very first images he made with his new process were botanical contact prints, much like Atkins, but using different light sensitive chemistry. And he quickly sent specimens as she did to botanists. We, for example, there's an album uh, that, that was put together in Italy. Talbot sent these specimens to a botanical colleague in Italy. So he, you know, again, he's part of this sort of international network of like-minded people. And 
he was trying to persuade them that his new invention of photography was going to be very useful as Atkins um, did in her time. Uh, Talbot is an interesting fellow. So he's a member, member of the landed gentry. He lived at Laycock, um, a few hours outside of London. Uh, and he, you know, his money came from renting his estates to, you know, to people who worked his land. Um, so he was relatively um, wealthy, not being fabulously wealthy, but relatively wealthy man. And in other words, he's not driven by financial need. And so um, although with his second invention, the color type, he took out a patent, which meant that to use it, you had to pay him a license and get his permission. Um, he wasn't a very good businessman. He, he attempted to encourage others to set up commercial studios that would use paper for his paper photography process. And a number of studios attempted it, but all of them eventually uh, fell into financial trouble and went bankrupt. So it wasn't until uh, the 1850s in the invention of glass negatives that paper-based photography, because then they would make paper prints from these glass negatives, that paper-based photography uh, superseded the daguerreotype and became the premier commercial photography. On the other hand, gentlemen amateurs, like Talbot himself, found paper photography to be very useful, and they could make photographs of the trees and the landscapes and their estates and so on. They could put together, indeed, uh, botanical albums of their own specimens uh, and show them to friends and things like that. And over in France, where they uh, basically ignored Talbot's patent rights, they uh, experimented with paper-based photography and made it a more commercially viable proposition. And paper-based photographs began to be made, for example, by French travelers to Egypt and places like this. So outside of Britain, paper-based photography had a better, had a, had a stronger commercial presence than it did inside Britain. And in, in retrospectively, we might well say that Talbot's um, defense of his patent rights somewhat stymied innovation for the process in Britain. Whereas in other countries where that patent didn't quite hold, some innovation was then possible and the process became far more popular. Interesting. Mm. We already heard a bit about, you know, the kind of the network um, that Anna Atkins had and the people that she was um, engaging with. And there is a question about other early female photographers and if she had any contact with them. For example, um, Elizabeth Stockdale Wilkinson was mentioned. Yeah, I don't know Elizabeth. I, I've not heard of Elizabeth Wilkinson. Um, we do know that, uh, as I say, women of, say, Atkins class did take up Talbot's process. And we have various examples of women making similar botanical specimens, usually using Talbot's process rather than cyanotype. Uh, there are also examples of women running professional daguerreotype studios. Usually, not invariably, but usually they've inherited them from a, a husband who's died or something like that. But there were professional women photographers working in the 1840s and 1850s. So women did have a presence in the photography world. Uh, of course, it's a relatively small presence relative to the number of men working in it. But it's like many aspects of the 19th century, we find uh, innovative and determined women finding a place for themselves within that world. One thing about photography was it was a new industry, like a kind of startup new tech industry uh, for the time. And perhaps that allowed women to take it up in ways that more traditional industries still were denied to them. Mm -hmm. I should say also, Lena, women were very enthusiastic patrons of photography. So uh, 
you know, there were, are a small number of women photographers from this early period, the 1840s, but there were far more women customers. So some of the first customers for daguerreotype studios in London, for example, were women, Quaker women in particular, for reasons that I'm not quite sure of, but we have a lot of early daguerreotypes of Quaker women, for example. So yeah, women certainly embraced the possibilities of photography and sometimes made photographs themselves as well. Just looking at a few other questions that have come through, there are quite many of all kinds of different questions. Um, can you talk more about the shift in Atkins cyanotypes becoming associated more with photographic objects rather than scientific evidence? Is this to do with where or how her work was collected or reproduced? I guess well, this has a lot to do with how photography is seen these days. I mean, these kind of categorizations, right? I mean, as I say, there's a shift in Atkins' work around 1852 with the death of her father. She finishes up the British Algae Project and then with Anne Dixon, she begins to make other kinds of albums. But whereas with the other projects, she published basically 12 fascicles that were she imagined would be bound together by the people who received them over this 10 years that they would then be bound together into a single sort of compendium. Uh, these other, after 1852 or so, these other albums were more for personal pleasure. That is, they were not made, like not quote unquote mass produced. We think maybe there were like 30 complete sets of the British algae made, whereas these other albums are more like single objects made up of many plates, but single, you know, more like singular objects that were possibly made for themselves or as gifts to close friends. So in other words, they weren't widely distributed and in that sense, were not particularly widely known either. Um, we have another question about um, how would, you know, how she saw herself. I think we already talked about this a little bit, but did she consider herself an ecologist or an artist? Or is that a modern distinction? I think that probably is a modern distinction. And the sad thing is we actually have relatively little evidence of what Atkins thought about this or most other topics. We have quite a lot. We know quite a lot about what she thought about her father because she lovingly produced this memoir that took a year to put together, including poems and memories of her father and all of this kind of thing. We have relatively little um, written by Atkins about her project. We mostly glean it from letters, often written by her father who refers to what his daughter is up to. So Atkins is one of those figures who remains somewhat enigmatic in terms of the, a wider knowledge of her personality or her own ideas or about life, you know, other than this album. There was also an earlier question about designers or manufacturers. I mean, we already, you know, if they took inspiration from, from her um, cyanotypes, you know, particularly thinking about wallpaper or textiles, etc., that we saw at the very beginning that, you know, today um, are using her motifs and um, the color actually, I mean, this blue color is of course something that, um, must have been quite spectacular also at the time. Do you know if there, there were any inspiration for designers or manufacturers? As I say, at the time, we have little evidence that Atkins albums had an impact outside of the small botanical circle in which they circulated. Yeah. However, by the late 19th and early 20th century, we do find other photographers photographing details of, of nature, of plants, uh, specifically for the use, for example, um, of designers, let's say during the Art Nouveau movement. Uh, so we find people making photographic albums of botanical specimens precisely so that designers could copy 
details and incorporate them into industrial design and other kinds of work, including you know wallpaper design and so on. But it's only after the 1980s that Anna Atkins' work has any kind of public profile like that. What you showed in the opening to our talk, that's a very contemporary phenomenon. Um, I think that's about it in terms of questions that have come through. Is there anything else that you would like to say about her work? Only that I think uh, Larry's done a fantastic job of giving us as much information as possible about Atkins, but there's still an awful lot to say about it. Um, she deserves detailed analysis of anybody's listening who would like a project. Um, for example, the later albums, there's not a huge amount uh, written about them. I mean, we talk about them as possible sort of uh, studies of early Victorian ecology, but it would be wonderful to have people not only from art history, but for example, from the sciences and botany, looking at them and giving us some more information about what their significance might be. So I think um, Larry has opened the door to the study of Atkins, but there's an awful lot more to do. And I hope, you know, over time, we'll know a lot more about her and we'll have a better understanding of what her significance really is. Do you think there is any more of her work to be discovered that might yeah. be you know, hiding somewhere? Yes, in fact, in that exhibition in New York, they discovered an album that had been miscatalogued in a, a huge album of her work that had been miscatalogued in a library somewhere and that was discovered by almost by chance. So we're pretty confident that there's quite a lot more of Atkins work out there, uh, possibly, who knows, deposited in libraries, you know, in the botanical section and people don't realize that as pho photographs, they're quite important as well. So uh, yeah, I think there's certainly more work to be found, but I would say in general that the early history of photography is still a field that is understudied. And there's just a lot of work in general out there to be not only found, but to be analyzed and interpreted and appreciated anew. Yeah, I think that's a very good way um, to end as well. And, um, you know, coming back to the whole theme of women and photography, it just shows that, you know, today there are so many photographers who happen to be women and who are active, but actually there were quite many women active as photographers at the very beginning of, of um, you know, photography as well. And it would be great to find out more about them and to, yeah, maybe rediscover some of their work and um, appreciate it properly. Yes, I think almost certainly there are more women to be discovered and fantastic work waiting for somebody to do the proper analysis of. And the whole field is just waiting for scholars to dig into it and make new discoveries. Well, thank you, Jeff, so much for joining me tonight. And thank you again to Torch for organizing this um, event. And um, for those of you who are in Oxford, the Photo Oxford Festival is still on for another few days. So you can wander around the city and um, discover some work there. And otherwise, please visit the homepage. And um, yeah, thank you very much for joining us tonight. And thank you also for all the nice questions. Bye.